Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. So if you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 18, we're finishing up today Jesus' words there. You remember that this uh, fourth major discourse uh, in Matthew is where Jesus is talking about the characteristics of this new faith community, this new faithful Israel within unfaithful Israel that Jesus is forming up. And of course, this new faithful community will be the Christian church. So let's read Jesus' words here, uh, starting in verse 21 down through verse 35. This is the word of God. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. And the servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid his hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved, and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers that he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly Father will also do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Our God and Father, we pray that by your Spirit you would open your word up to us now, that you would make us truly your children, like you in every respect, that we would exercise mercy as you have exercised mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you remember in the preceding portion of Matthew chapter 18, Jesus was emphasizing reconciliation. He was emphasizing uh, Pursuing a sinning brother, pursuing a straying brother or sister. And this kind of uh, emphasis on love and compassion and brotherliness and sisterliness within the, uh, this new faith community would naturally give rise to Peter's question here about how many times a disciple would be expected to forgive a brother who repeatedly sins against him. Now, without some kind of limit, It would seem to just set disciples up to be taken advantage of. And that's exactly what Peter is concerned with. And Peter is not being hard here. He proposes seven times. Seven being the biblical number of fullness. And if you think about it, seven times in actual experience. Somebody sinning against you in some kind of a direct way. Seven different times in coming to you and asking for forgiveness. Seven times would seem like bending over backwards in mercy and in patience and forgiveness. But Jesus responds to Peter with a principle and with a parable to illustrate that principle. The principle is this, not seven times, but up to 70 times seven. In other words, Jesus says there is no limit to the number of times we must forgive a brother or sister who sins against us. So if you're thinking in terms of limit, Jesus says there is none. 
But we begin to see as we look at Jesus' parable here that Jesus' approach to this topic versus Peter's approach is not simply a difference in mathematics. Jesus is signaling to Peter that he's approaching this topic from the complete wrong direction. He's looking at it upside down. Now, what Jesus is teaching here, we need to remember, is echoing something that he taught earlier in his ministry in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember there that Jesus taught us to pray the family prayer uh, of, of being God's children, and that is, he says, in this manner, pray, our Father who art in heaven, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Okay? And then he goes up and follows the Lord's prayer with this. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So Jesus here is echoing what he has already taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And he is expounding on it and building on it. Now notice that both in the Lord's Prayer and in this parable, Jesus views sins as debts. Jesus views sins as debts, and that's very significant. Now if you look in the Bible, sins are portrayed in a number of different ways. Uh, they're portrayed as falling short. They're portrayed as trespasses. They're portrayed as missing the mark. They are portrayed as pollution or defilement. All of these different ways sins are portrayed. But when they're talked about as debts, that's when it's really getting to the very root nature of sin. Because Jesus says that all of life is based on the two great commandments, to love God with all that we are and to love our, nat uh, love our neighbor as ourself. Now, these two commandments, notice, first of all, they're affirmative. They're not negative. They're not forbidding anything. They're telling us what to do. Secondly, they're both personal and relational. They're personal and relational. Love God. That means we have a relationship with God. And based on who God is, who we are as his creatures, and the relationship he established between us, we owe a certain debt. And that debt is the debt of love, of loving God with everything, all of our emotions, all of our minds, all of our intellect, all of our imagination, all of our strength with all that we are. And because God, whom God has made each one of us, we bear a relationship to one another in which we owe one another a running debt. And that debt is to love one another as we love ourselves. So you see that God has actually set up life where there is one kind of debt that is a good thing. And that is the debt of love. Uh, Paul says in Romans 13, 9, Owe no one anything except to love them. Okay, God made life that way, that we have that kind of running debt. But here's, here's the qualifier. God means, means this debt to be dealt with and paid on a cash basis instantly. Okay, So the debt of love we owe to God, the debt of love we owe to one another is a good debt, but it's supposed to be paid on the spot in cash, which means we, we give what we owe, we love. We love in the moment. We love God in the moment. We love one another in the moment. And so we have that obligation. The problem comes in is when we don't pay that debt of love instantly and in cash, instantly and in actual love, then we build up debt. We have debt that's not paid. So. The debt of love is a good thing as long as it is a paid. It is a debt which can be paid, but never paid off. Can, the debt can be paid, but never paid off. Okay, So that's where this concept of debt comes from, and that's why it's at the bottom of all the other concepts of sin. And what this means is that sin, at very base, is an omission before it is a commission. Every sin of commission is first a sin of omission. There's a failure to love somebody. There's a failure to love somebody. If we had loved the person we were supposed to, the sin of commission never would have occurred. So it's very significant that uh, Jesus here talks about debts.
the same way that he did in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the other thing is this, this relationship. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, the whole context there to forgiving others uh, and asking God to forgive us as we have forgiven others. This is all in the context of loving your neighbor. Jesus in Matthew 5, 43 says this, You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. Does this sound like a brother who keeps sinning against you and sinning and sinning, right? Somebody who spitefully uses you and persecutes you. Why? Why should we do this? What's the reason Jesus gives? Here it is. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. In other words, that you may be like God. That's what children are supposed to do, imitate their parents. And that's what we're supposed to do as children of God, is imitate the Father. And if we want to be like God, we're going to be merciful. We're going to do good to those who don't love us. Isn't that what God does? Jesus goes on. He says, look, what does God do? He causes the sun to rise on the evil as well as the good. He sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. He says, look, if you love those who love you, then what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do the same. If you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so. You notice that even then, uh, the, the IRS was used as kind of the poster child of, of evil. <laughs> so, even then, the IRS was bad. So he says, look, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So you're not going to be that way. Why? Because that's not the way God is, and He is the Father. So what we start seeing here is that forgiveness is just part of salvation. Uh, we have a tendency as modern evangelicals to think of forgiveness as the whole of salvation, like that's the whole point, and it's not. The goal of salvation is for God to adopt us back into His family. We were created to be sons and daughters. We lost that because of our sin. The goal of salvation is to reconstitute that. Take sinners, take enemies who hate God, and to adopt them as sons and daughters, bring them back into God's family so that we're restored in that relationship where we're walking with the Father and we want to be like the Father. Now, in order for us to be adopted as God's children back into His family, we have to first of all be reconciled to God. We have to be reconciled to Him. And in order to be reconciled to God, we have to be forgiven. Our sins have to be dealt with. Hey, okay. So we're supposed to be brought back into the, Father, uh, into the family, and then we are to imitate the Father. That's what we were created to do, and that's what we have been saved to do. So, here, here's what's important. Being forgiven is essential to being brought back into God's family. But being forgiven does not make us like the Father. For the Father has never been forgiven, nor has He needed to be. But the Father has gone to great lengths and to a great price in order to forgive. The Father has never been forgiven, but He has gone to great lengths and to great expense in order to forgive. So while this is the family of the forgiven, for every child in this family, except for one, Jesus has been forgiven, this is even more fundamentally the family of those who forgive. As important and as precious as it is to be forgiven, being forgiven does not make us like God. Forgiving does. And that is Jesus' whole point. But what about Jesus' warning here in our parable in verse 35? He talks about the, the king throws this wicked servant, hands him over to the torturers, and then Jesus says, So my heavenly Father 
also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Doesn't Jesus there state a true condition? And if then, if you don't do this, if you don't forgive from your heart, the Father is not going to forgive you. Isn't that a true condition? Yes, it is. But we have to remember that there are more than one kind of condition. And there's two kinds here that we need to talk about. One kind of a condition is a condition of price or qualification. It's something you have to pay, you have to earn it, you have to buy it, okay? That's one kind of a condition. Or a qualification. You're not really buying it, but there's some act or something you have to do to qualify, all right? But the other kind of condition is a condition of fruit, all right? So on the one hand, you have a condition of price or qualification. On the other hand, you have a qualification of fruit, all right? A condition of price or qualification is just what it says. It's a means of earning or qualifying for something. A condition of fruit, on the other hand, is a proof of identity. See the difference? Qualification of price, I mean, uh, a condition of price or qualification is a means of earning or gaining access to something. A condition of fruit is a proof of identity. It's about who are you, all right? So a condition of price or qualification beckons you to work. It beckons you to work, to earn, or to perform, to qualify. The focus there is on you and what you can do. A condition of fruit calls you to remember who you are. Its focus is on God and who He has made you. You see the difference there. Condition of price. It focuses on me, what I can do, what I can earn, how I can perform. A condition of fruit calls me to remember who am I. The focus there is on God and what He has done through Christ and who He has made me. So both are true conditions, but they're completely opposite in their focus and in the kind of fear they produce in us. A condition of price or qualification focuses us on ourselves and what we can do, and the fear it produces in us is a fear of failing. A fear of failing. And if it doesn't produce fear in us, it produces a false confidence about me and about what I can do. A condition of fruit focuses on God and what He has done, and the kind of fear it produces in us is not is a sense of awe. Fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's, not ta- it's talking there about a sense of awe before God. And that's the kind of fear in us that uh, a condition of fruit produces. It produces in us a desire to not forget whom God has made us, as well as a desire in us to live up to His intentions for us by bearing the family resemblance of the head of the family. So Jesus here is talking about the second kind of condition. He's talking about a condition of fruit. Now how do I know that? Because that's what he's talking about all the time throughout his ministry. He's always talking about fruit, fruit, fruit. He's talking about a vine bearing fruit. He's talking about a fig tree that fails to bear fruit. He's always establishing conditions of fruit. Who is God? What has He done for you? Who has He made you? Are you bearing a family resemblance? Are you bearing the fruit? So, remember also the point that Jesus made in the Sermon on the Mount. Our Father is the King, and the King is our Father. So the King in this parable is the Father that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, he says it here. He identifies the King as the Father in this parable. So in this parable, Jesus is building on what he already taught in the Sermon on the Mount. So let's take a look now at this parable and see what new things Jesus teaches us 
And then we will talk about what all this means for us in terms of forgiving others. Now, in the parable here, the king, you know that he is, a, you see that he is a righteous king. He is settling debts. But we also see that he is a merciful king. Those two things go together. He's righteous and he is merciful. The servant here is a debtor who has built up an unpayable debt. It is unpayable both because it is astronomical in amount and because the servant seems to be one who goes further into debt the more he tries to get out. Now the king correctly perceives who the servant is and what this situation is. But the servant does not correctly perceive his situation. For this servant still believes that he can pay off this debt. All he needs is a little more time and he will pay it all. Now this was not a minor miscalculation, but a complete self-deception and a detachment from reality. You see, a talent was the largest measure of money in the Roman world. And the number 10,000 was the highest number that had a Greek name for it. So that was the highest number that there was actually a Greek name for, and then the talent is the highest measure of money. So a talent was 6,000 denarii. And one denarii was a day's wage for a, for a, a laborer, okay, day's wage. So if we think, okay, $10 an hour, eight hours a day, 80 bucks, okay, maybe that's about what a denarii was. It was a day's wage, okay? So that means that one talent was almost 16 and a half years of wages. Assuming you could save everything you earned, you didn't have any expenses, it would take 16 and a half years to earn a talent. So 10,000 talents was 60 million denarii, or over 27,000 years of wages, assuming you could save all of it, okay? Or if you want to look at it another way, 10,000 talents is about 300 tons of silver. All right. So the point here is that this is an unpayable debt. It's a completely unpayable debt. But in spite of the servant's situation, and in spite of his failure to perceive his true situation, he's just thinking, just give me a little more time. But pay it off. I mean, you just sit there, shake your head. <laughs> this guy doesn't have a clue. In spite of all that, the king's heart goes out to him. And that's the idea of the Greek there. He is moved from within with compassion over this guy. And so he acts in mercy in a way that the servant wasn't even asking. The servant was deluded as to his true state. He just asked for more time. The king does not grant his request. Instead, he forgives him his entire debt. He forgives the entire debt. So we're left here with a situation where in one sense, this servant understands what the king has done for him. Okay, he understands the bare fact the king has forgiven my debt. But in another sense, the servant doesn't understand at all what the king has done for him. And this stems from the fact that the servant was deluded to start with as to his true condition. He thought he needed a helping hand. And he understood the king gave him a helping hand and a couple of helping hands. He gave him a lot of help. And he appreciated that. But he didn't understand that he was in a helpless and a hopeless situation. And therefore, he did not understand that the king had not just helped him, but saved him. The king had saved him from a helpless and a hopeless situation. Now, when one owes an infinite debt and an unpayable debt, one is in a helpless situation and a hopeless situation. Not just to a normal creditor. This is not a normal creditor here. This is not like when the other servant owes this servant. That's a normal creditor. This is the sovereign. This is the sovereign of the realm. For the sovereign of the realm to forgive you everything 
and to wipe out the debt under these circumstances, that is a life-changing event, but not for this servant, okay? Because getting a helping hand, while it is appreciated, it's not life-changing. And that lies at the bottom of the servant's problem, even after the king has forgiven him. One who truly grasps what the king has done here would first of all be filled with gratitude, secondly filled with humility, and thirdly would be attached to the king forever, would want to serve the king forever, would want to be like this king who has saved them. And that is the servant's final sin, you note, being unlike the king who has forgiven him. That is the final sin. That is why he is delivered over to the torturers. So the bottom line is that if the servant had understood and embraced the mercy the king had extended him, he would have extended the same kind of mercy to his fellow servant, necessarily. And this explains how it is, while those who have received mercy must extend mercy, Extending mercy is not a way of earning mercy. For if extending mercy is a way of earning mercy, then it isn't mercy, is it? It doesn't work that way. Those who have received mercy must extend mercy because that is what those who have truly received mercy do. See, that's a condition of fruit. It's about who you are, who has God made you, what has he done for you. So now let's make some applications here. Now the first thing to note, as we've already done, is that there's this huge disconnect between what the king has done and what the servant perceives that the king has done. The, the king has done something objectively, but the servant subjectively perceives wrongly what the king has done. And that false perception leads to a false path of behavior for this servant. Now, we need to see something very important here, and that's this. The servant's actions, the servant's life, are driven not by the objective truth of what the king has done, but by the servant's subjective perceptions of what the king has done. And we need to take this home. What that means is this. Our mercifulness to other people, our willingness to forgive them, our ability to forgive them, will not necessarily be driven by what God has objectively done for us if we subjectively forget what He has done for us, if we fail to perceive accurately what He has done for us. This servant's heart perceptions were disconnected from reality that made him unmerciful and forgiving. And the same thing can happen to us. This is where our struggles come in. There are times in our Christian life where we're very much aware um, of how much God has forgiven us. And that's usually times where God has, by the Spirit, really brought out and opened our eyes to how sinful we still are. Usually at those moments when we see that, we see our condition, how sinful we still are, or we remember back about how sinful we were, um, we're aware of how much we've been forgiven. That produces gratitude and humility in us, and it gives us a heart of compassion toward others. But even though we can feel that and apprehend that on certain occasions, we do have a tendency to forget there are other times in our Christian life where that kind of fades into the background. Oftentimes those are times where we feel like we're doing pretty good. It's like, I, yeah, I know I'm a sinner, but I'm doing pretty good. You know, everything seems to be going along pretty good. Those are the times it's easy to forget how much God's forgiven us, and those are the times when it can be very hard. We find it hard to forgive somebody else. We find it hard to be compassionate to another. So we'll be tempted to be unmerciful and unforgiving. Now, what do we need to do? What we need to do is what Jesus does for us here. We need to go back. We need to go back to God's Word. We need to come out of our subjective perceptions and feelings. And we need to go back to what is objectively true. 
we go back to the Word of God, we remember how much God has forgiven us. He, we remember how much patience God exercises toward us. One of the songs we sing is a song by um, John Newton. One there is above all others is the name of it. And in it there is a line that says this, Could we bear from one another what he daily bears from us? Yet this dear friend and brother loves us though we treat him thus. Could we bear from one another what he daily bears from us? And that's what we have to remember when we look back to God's word. So remember, so many different points of the Christian life involve coming out of ourselves, coming out of our subjective feelings, going back to God's word and saying, here's the truth. This is the truth. And we go there in prayer and we ask God to remake our own perceptions and feelings. But what about forgiveness in the broader perspective? Doesn't this kind of mercy and forgiveness set us up to be used and trampled upon by others, just as Peter feared here? Well, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. And in showing you, though, and why that is, I want to talk about uh, some aspects of what forgiveness is and what it is not. Because there are some common misconceptions among Christians in, in both directions. First of all, what is this forgiveness that Jesus is commanding? Being merciful and forgiving, it is an attitude of faith. It is an attitude of faith that recognizes that God rules the world. Number one, God rules the world. Number two, He is fundamentally merciful and forgiving. That's what we see in God. And three that God ultimately punishes the unmerciful, just like the king did with the unmerciful servant here. And finally, it is an attitude of faith that recognizes that vengeance belongs to God, not us. Vengeance belongs to God, not us. I'm going to run through those very quickly again. Being merciful and forgiving is an attitude of faith that recognizes that God rules the world. He is fundamentally merciful and forgiving. He ultimately punishes the unmerciful. And four, vengeance belongs to God and not us. That is his prerogative. Okay? So you see, there's an entire worldview here that drives mercy and forgiveness. There is an entire worldview here. And that is why when we're not merciful, when we're not forgiving... We've lost our worldview. <laughs> We've lost a lot more than just feelings of compassion. We've lost our worldview. We're, we're not walking in the faith in that sense. Listen to what Paul says in Romans. Listen to this, and I put this passage in your outline. This is Romans 12, starting at verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Well, how do you do that? How do you have regard for good things and live peaceably as much as it depends on you with all men? Well, just what Paul says. Repay no one evil for evil. What makes the world an unpeaceful place? What makes the world a place that's not full of good things? The fact that people are busy repaying evil for evil. That's what makes the world go round. That's the problem with modern concepts of social justice. What's the problem with these concepts of social justice? The fact that they ain't social justice. They're just a fancy sounding, good sounding word for, as an excuse to repay evil for evil. These people, these people with power, this race, this, what, they did this to us in the past. Now we are entitled to do evil to them. We're entitled to be on top now. Okay, so where does that stop? Where does that stop? Jesus died to stop all that. Jesus died as the only pure victim in the history of the human race to stop this scapegoating 
and man's view of social justice, which kills people by the millions and always has. So Paul says, repay no one evil for evil. He goes on in verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So aside from the fact of who God is and who we are, let me ask you this. Somebody's done you wrong. So you want to handle this? Or would you rather have God handle this? You think you're wiser than he is? You think you can handle this better than he is? You think you can handle this without destroying yourself? Or do you want God to handle it? He is God and vengeance belongs to him. I will repay, says the Lord. Now the problem is, is God doesn't do things as fast as we would like or in the way that we would like. I remember that, uh, when our kids were little, um, an event that would happen occasionally is one uh, child would bring us the spanking stick so that we could take vengeance on some other fellow child. And that's what we want a lot of times with God. It's like we take him the spanking stick right there in prayer. Say, here's the problem, God. There he is. Here's the stick. There you go. I have some ideas. <laughs> I have some ideas how how this would make a beautiful story and tie up all the loose ends here. Well, we're not qualified to do that. And we have to remember, how would we want God to deal with us? That, that's always a good uh, way of thinking about it. How would we want God to deal with us? Okay? So it goes on. Paul says here, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, listen to this. You will heap coals of fire on his head. That doesn't seem to fit, does it? We've got all this language of peace and mercy, and all of a sudden Paul's talking about dumping coals of fire on somebody's head. And he's quoting here. This is Proverbs. This is in Proverbs. All of this stuff is coming from the Old Testament. Even the idea of doing good to your neighbor. In Exodus, so if you find your, uh, your enemy's donkey who has strayed off, you shall surely return it. If you find your enemy's donkey who's, who's faltering under its burden, you shall surely help. Okay? So this goes all the way back with God. So we see here that forgiving, this is one of our common misconceptions, forgiving is weakness. Forgiving is weakness, and it sets you up to be used. It's like, well, how do, I don't know. It seems to say here that forgiving is warfare. Forgiving is strength, but it's the right kind of warfare. By forgiving, you're aligning yourself with the father, the head of the family, the one who rules the world, the one who says, vengeance is mine, and you're cooperating with the way that he does things. Heaping coals of fire on your head here, I think that's a picture of a person becoming convicted. They're becoming convicted because they're your enemy and there you are doing good to them. You're feeding them, you're giving them a drink, you're giving them, you're doing good to them. Now, when those coals of fire, that conviction comes upon them, they're going to react one of two ways. They're either going to be humbled, they're going to turn to God in grace, they're going to reconcile with you because they are convicted. Okay, that's total victory. That's total victory for God and for you and for the other person. But if they don't respond that way, then they're probably going to double down and start treating you even worse. But why are they going to do that? because they're under conviction and they're not responding to it. So they're probably even going to get worse. But you know, God is working all, in all of that. That's what we have to realize. Do you want to work with God or do you want to work against Him? Where forgiveness aligns you with Him. And then finally, Paul ends with this maxim. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. This is a warfare here between good and evil. He says, if you repay evil for evil, which is what non-forgiveness is, it's holding on to it and either doing something or hoping for something evil to happen. He says you are being overcome by evil when you do that. You're being overcome by evil. Instead, overcome evil with good. How? By lining yourself up with God, understanding He's in control, and being like Him, being merciful, forgiving, leaving the matter in His hand. 
Okay. Proverbs talks about these things, uh, and, but it adds something. If you want to read what uh, Paul is quoting there, it's in Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. That's what Paul is quoting. Okay. Listen to what Proverbs 24, 17 and 18 says. Not only do you not repay your enemy, all right, it says this. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Not only do you not go try to trip them up, it says do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Why? Lest the Lord see it and it displease him and he turn away his wrath from him. You see, this completely turns upside down our normal way of thinking. So you don't take vengeance, you don't seek vengeance, and you don't rejoice when your enemy falls or, and let your heart be glad when they stumble. When you start feeling that, you flee from that feeling, you turn to God in prayer, you ask for God to have mercy. Now, having mercy doesn't mean that God lets somebody get away with however they're living. That's not what mercy means. Mercy means you do good to them, and that's not good. The worst judgment of all is for God to give us over to sin. And how does it seem like when God gives us over to sin? It seems like life is just going swimmingly. Everything's going great. That's the worst judgment of all. Okay? And so when you're asking for God to have mercy on somebody, you're asking for Him to deal with them as with a child, to bring them to Himself, to reconcile them, to bring them to where they're to a state of repentance. Okay? That's what it means. So all of this describes the attitude of mercy and forgiveness that Jesus commands. And so what we see here is that this attitude, this heart of mercy and forgiveness, is not naive. It is not simplistic. It is not pietistic. And it is not weak. The heart of mercy and forgiveness is not naive, simplistic, pietistic, or weak, which are the things that we normally associate with that kind of heart. Now building on that, let's point out a few things that forgiving does not mean. A few things forgiving does not mean. I'm going to give you six. I'm sure there's others. First of all, forgiving does not mean reconciliation. Reconciliation requires two. It requires two hearts that are turning toward God and one another. Forgiving doesn't require two. Forgiving only requires one. And that's what God says to us. You forgive. Secondly, forgiving does not mean forgetting. That's something you often hear, that it means forgetting. Forgiving does not mean forgetting. And let me add to that, that forgiving does not mean failing to recognize sin as sin in the first place. What forgiving does mean is not rehearsing sins and adding up the score. There's a difference. And once again, God is our example. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, Paul says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses against them. And the Greek word there, imputing, means counting up. It's an accounting word. So what Paul is saying here is that while, Paul, while God has a perfect knowledge of all our sin, He doesn't forget. He doesn't fail to recognize it, and He doesn't forget about it. What Paul is saying is that God isn't constantly adding it up, adding up the score, counting it up one more time. Let's replay that video. Let's replay that YouTube one more time. And let's remember... So while God perfectly knows sin and recognizes it, and He has a perfect accounting of it, God did not sit there and count it up and count it up and count it up, because if He had, He never would have sent His Son to die for our sins. Okay? So God is not that way, and we're not supposed to be that way. Okay? So if you're counting up the sin, if you're replaying it, 
That's a sure sign you're not forgiving. You're, not, you're holding on to it. You're not letting it go. You've got to give it to God. And there's times when it's really hard for us and you'll have to give it to God. You may have to give it to God a hundred times. But you just keep giving it until it's really there. Number three, forgiving does not mean naivete. Doesn't mean like you're a little flower child. It doesn't mean that you're like, a, who was the, uh, who was the the girl in the Harry Potter series who her father was kind of like the flower child out there. She had always wore crazy earrings and she just kind of floated around in her own little world. What was her, huh? Yes. Yeah. It doesn't mean that we're just kind of floating around, not really connected to things. In John chapter 2, we're told that Jesus was leery of certain people. He was leery of them because it says he knew all men and he knew what was in man. Okay, Jesus is the ultimate merciful man. He's the one who said on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But Jesus was leery of certain people because he knew what was in man. He was not naive. And that leads us to the next thing forgiving does not mean. This is number four. Forgiving does not mean trust. Forgiving does not mean trust. Those people that Jesus was leery of were professing believers. So that there were a number of people who were believing in him. But it says Jesus did not entrust himself to them. It doesn't say he rejected them. It doesn't say he held anything against them. It says that he wasn't naive. He knows what was in man. Maybe they're real believers, but there's a whole mix of stuff going on in there inside them. It says he did not entrust himself to them. Another example is John the Baptist, who was suspicious of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Matthew chapter 3, they come to him to hear his preaching. They come to him to be baptized. He's suspicious. Why? Because he's not naive. He knows what they teach as a whole, as a group. And so he says to them, Do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. Why does he say that to them? Because he knows what they're thinking. He knows this is what, as a group, they think. They feel privileged by their covenant privileges. They want to lay back. We have Abraham as our father. We don't need to repent. He knows what they're thinking. Okay? So we see that while forgiveness is free, trust must be earned. Now, that doesn't mean that we go around in a constant state of distrust. You know, if there's somebody who's a Christian, we usually start out with a certain amount of goodwill in the bank toward them, and we should. All right? But real trust, you know, Proverbs says, choose your close friends carefully. Real trust is something that is earned over time by who the person reveals themselves to be. Okay? If I say, give me your wallet, give me your house, give me your car, let me, let me hold them. If I just walk up to you, you don't know me, and I say, give me your wallet, I'll hold it for you. What's the matter? Don't you trust me? Well, you can force yourself to give me your wallet. You cannot force yourself to trust me. Why? Because you don't know me. Trust is something I evoke in you. I pull it out of you. How? By who I reveal myself to be. By who I reveal myself to be. Okay? And that's the, that's the nature of it. Right? So forgiveness is free. Trust must be earned. An attitude of mercy and forgiveness does not mean no suspicion. It doesn't mean that. John the Baptist was suspicious. It doesn't mean acceptance of whatever the person says or whatever they do. Number five, forgiving does not mean there are no conditions for future relations. John the Baptist told these same Pharisees and Sadducees, bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. I want to see fruit worthy of repentance. He's laying down some conditions there. So forgiving doesn't mean that there's no conditions for future relations. And finally, and we've already touched on this, but I want to reiterate it. Forgiving is not weakness. Forgiving is not weakness. Forgiving is power. 
Forgiving does not enslave you or put you under the other person. Forgiving frees you. We imagine that harboring ill will toward another will somehow punish them. That's what we think. By harboring ill will, that's somehow going to punish them. But that's like swallowing poison and waiting for the other person to die. Unforgiveness focuses you on the other person. It gives that person, it grants them a kind of power over you. Unforgiveness focuses you on the other person and it builds poison within you. It just builds poison within you. Forgiveness focuses you on God. If you're not focused on God, you'll never forgive. And it builds health within you. And it makes you like God. It enables you to walk with Him. Carries you from glory to glory. So being merciful and forgiving, in conclusion, is an attitude of faith, once again, that recognizes that God rules this world. He is fundamentally merciful and forgiving. We want to be like Him. But He ultimately punishes the unmerciful, and vengeance belongs to Him and not us. So we see then, finally, that in Jesus' parable, the servant's lack of mercy, which is really vengeance here. He takes the guy by the throat. It really shows a lack of repentance on his part. Because repentance means turning to God. And turning to God always results in starting from that moment to become like God. There's no such thing as receiving forgiveness without turning to God. And there's no such thing as turning to God without starting to become like God. And one thing you know for sure about God is that He forgave you. So if you find a disciple who won't forgive, if you find yourself not forgiving, you know the problem lies much deeper than simply unforgiveness. The problem lies much deeper than that. For one thing, it means that they haven't truly embraced the forgiveness that God has given them. And that's what we need to remember. When we're finding it hard to forgive, to that extent, we're not really embracing the forgiveness God has given to us. It's a way of saying, I don't want to be like the head of the family. Which is another way of saying, I don't really want to be in his family. That's not where we want to be. We want to be in his family and like the Father. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.